0: Dr. Matt Mason is a composer, pianist, and educator at Lincoln, Illinois, and he's also a horror buff. And we'll talk more about the podcast he's hosting or co-hosting, Watch No Evil. Can you tell us about your background and how it has influenced your work as a composer, first and foremost?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I I grew up in a really small town, uh, rural Illinois, so south, not near Chicago, not in the big city. Relatively, you know, close to the big city, four hours away or something. But I uh, had parents that were uh, much more comfortable in rural areas, and so uh, as I was growing up, I was basically playing the piano as my primary source of entertainment, and then watching movies. We didn't actually have like stable internet connection where I lived because we technically lived on the outskirts of town. So uh, my my entire childhood was kind of dictated by what movies I could get my hands on and what pieces of sheet music I could get my hands on. And and that was it. And so uh when I when I first started composing, I was I was really young. And I think we have, you know, this conception of the prodigy and like the musical prodigy. And mm. I certainly was not that. <laughs> I well, how I was old are we talking far again? from that? Uh, so, I started playing piano when I was four years old. I didn't I start composing that. until I was like 11, 12, 13. And it was just because I was starting to run out of things to do. Um, Sounds like prodigy so, age to me. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, you know, I think prodigy comes with it uh, the baggage of excellence. and And I was in a very, very comfortable position where. Basically, no one was going to hear the work that I was creating, even mm-hmm. at that age. So it gave me the opportunity to really explore and expand independently of uh, critique, which really helped me to develop my own kind of artistic taste and what I liked. Uh, and because my exposure to music was either based film scores or the classical musicians, Mozart, Beethoven, Liszt, Chopin... I was really inundated with this very specific style of composition that ended up carrying me kind of to where I am now. Uh, so all of my music is very, very traditional in its background information and in its inspiration, but I've used the last 10 years of actually traveling and, and trying to see the sites and coming up with my own personal, Id- uh, personal identity to build and develop uh, my artistic sensibility, which comes from being uh, a rural Midwestern kid without a lot of things to do, uh, listening to classical music, uh, being a young queer individual in an extremely conservative area, uh, and also growing up and working in uh, the Catholic uh, Church and then in uh, a Lutheran church, so... A lot of my music has to do with kind of religious imagery and trauma combined with uh, co- combined with kind of uh, queer sensibilities and queer temporality, uh, which is uh, this concept that was uh, first devised by a, a music academic named Jack Halberstam, uh, which is about how queer people experience the passage of time a little bit differently because of the uh, compulsory heteronormativity that they grow up in. Well,
0: yeah. Well, what era would would this be? Uh,
1: they are still living, so I want to say it was maybe late '90s, early 2000s. Okay. That they were that they were coming up with uh, uh, all of these theories and mm-hmm. brilliant, brilliant author. And so I, I kind of t- took to that as the reason that I was doing all of these things, and that started to permeate my work, the way that I feel time as I'm actually composing. It's mostly related to, like, the sound of just, like, a very regular ticking clock in the background. And that has haunted me uh, since I was a kid. I just the, hear um, that clock ticking in the background. The grandfather clock. The grandfather clock. And it's it's an interesting thing. You You have popular music, which is always very rhythmic, My music does not sound at all rhythmic. You wouldn't necessarily be able to tell that it was rhythmic, but the way that I feel it, and that's just me saying that people have told me like, oh, I didn't realize that you were so considerate of the rhythmic element in your music and like the repetition of things. And to me, I'm like, that's all I can hear. I just hear that ever present clock ticking in my head as everything is happening and going on and it's it's spinning and unfolding but it's all related back to this kind of core concept hmm. of the way I, that I experienced time uh growing up in the growing up in the midwest
0: i think you did mention that yeah when you're growing up uh you know watching any movies that you could get your hands on i suppose the majority of those were kind of in the horror
1: genre <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> mm mm-hmm. mhm I would watch uh, horror movies with my dad. I mean, the the first memory I have of sitting down and watching a complete movie was, and it's not necessarily horror, but Jurassic Park, which yeah. has a, a surprising number of uh, sudden horror elements to it. And I, it's, you know, mm. action adventure, but there there are moments that are kind of terrifying throughout uh, there.
0: Hmm. That scene of that philosopher in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, that's that's frightening. And I, I think that uh, even the the hmm. part where uh, she's in the underground trying to turn back on the lights and she yeah. sees the hands that have been, mm-hmm. eaten, like that's traumatizing to, to someone who's a little kid. And it wasn't traumatizing to me. I was like, I need hmm. more of this. Um, and then from there, I just started watching more and, and hmm. more horror movies. And it got to the point where, you know, I was five or six years old and my dad had given up trying to stop me um, from watching horror movies. And uh, part of that is also because I had a sister that was seven years older than I was and she was allowed to watch horror movies. And so I would watch horror movies with her. Um, one of my, one of my favorite memories is, um, her and a friend of hers, uh, sat me down in a chair and made me watch Halloween H2O with them, uh, which was awful. Um, And I was so scared, and I don't know why that memory persists, but I I still go back to that movie, and I still love that movie, even though I know at the time I was like heart-tensingly horrified by it. all of my fondest memories of watching movies are, are often tied to watching those movies with someone, um, with family members and, and being so scared by them, but also having this kind of uh, communal fear and also the comfort that comes with that. So being able to enjoy films um, with my family, with my sister, with my friends, uh, has, has it's just always been really important to me. We'll look at
0: Chiron uh, projects and teaching. Um, could you explain your latest projects involving uh, the piano as a intermediary um, device in the embodied
1: performances? Yeah, of course. So uh, embodied performance is this practice that comes from dance, actually. Okay. Uh, and, and what intermediary devices typically represent uh, in embodied performance as it relates to dance music is, uh, and by dance music, I mean like contemporary ballet. Mm-hmm. Often it's it's electronics uh, or some kind of technology that enhances the dance visual so that it makes it less ephemeral and more tied to a concrete subject matter. So for instance, uh, having a dancer who is performing about water, an intermediary device might be uh, a projection mapping of a river behind them that they are moving in. Um, and so the piano... Uh, as an intermediary device for embodied performance, is trying to do a similar thing, but without the use of technology. We don't talk about pianos in the same way that we talk about dance, but there is a similarity in the choreography that is necessary. If you've ever seen like a pianist in concert, like um, a Martha Argerich or a long, they are moving, and they are expressive, and they are mm-hmm. expansive, and their whole body is shifting left and right. Yep. And that, that is a dance. They are doing a dance. It's like they're feeling the music. They're absolutely feeling the music. And in fact, mm-hmm. the motions that they use are yeah. creating the sonic component. Mm-hmm. It's in fact not only uh, not only like this physical visual expression, but it has sonic implications. They are producing the sound. So uh, what this is for me and how I use it in my projects is I'm trying to see what I can do with a pianist's visuals first, rather than looking at the notes and the composition and devising what this pitch sounds like and what this pitch sounds like, but instead taking a look at physical gestures and what kinds of sounds might appear out of the piano because of that gesture, thinking of it in terms of dance rather than of sound and then creating the sound as a secondary part of the performance. Um, So my, my PhD dissertation, uh, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, is this piano concerto called things that drift ashore. Which is uh, actually inspired by the horror, uh, the the horror manga artist G Gito, who's one of my favorite artists and favorite authors. Um, and it's about this uh, things that drift ashore. Specifically, um, there's this uh, large whale that that washes onto the shore and begins to decompose. And so, for me, as I'm I'm working on this piece, I'm thinking about the physicality of, of motions of waves, of what waves look like when performed in dance patterning what it would actually look like and then what kind of sound we can pull out of the piano rather than put into the piano through that kind of gesture um as well this is where i start to get into like the more experimental part of my compositional process and the the Mm -hmm. art that i do um i like to I like to use prepared pianos, so this this piece that I'm talking about, which is getting performed in September, and I'm really excited. We'll uh, uh, it uses both the piano in the traditional format. There's, there's a person sitting at a bench, and they're playing on the keys. In the background, as another one of those ghosts, there's a second piano. The lid has been removed from that piano, and it's just filled with different objects of metal and of glass. Uh, And one of my favorite techniques, which if there are any musicians and composers listening, I highly, highly recommend using this because it's so interesting and cool. You take fishing line, you cover it in rosin, you wrap it around the strings, and then you take a, a violin bow or something, and Mm -hmm. you bow that fishing line, and it creates this really ethereal, super airy and and super lush sound because you're vibrating the strings, Mm -hmm. but you're not using the action of the hammer hitting the string. The the tools of the piano and the things that you can actually do with that instrument far exceed kind of the norm that we would expect from it. We see very stodgy, very uptight, and very classic players with their coattails sitting at the keyboard and yeah, I'm imagining you know, that. playing Mozart, <laughs> yeah. but there's so much you can do.
0: Can you share some highlights or memorable experiences from uh, working with uh, prestigious ensembles such as uh, Jack Quartet, um, Ensemble Dal Niente, and um, Impulse Ensemble?
1: Yeah, of course. So Impulse Ensemble is actually uh, an ensemble at the University of Oregon that I have never been to, but I've gotten to work with them. I, I know uh, a young composer. Uh, well, I shouldn't say young. I think he's my age or older. So, But he's a composer at the University of Oregon that has worked with and, and led this ensemble. And uh, they brought me on to be a guest artist and I sent them, you know, my bio and everything. And I, I came and I gave like a little bit of a lecture on my process hmm. and my practice, all of the things that I did. And the majority of the questions that I received afterwards were <laughs> about the Watch Do no Evil podcast, <laughs> yeah, I <don't... laughs> which, I, which I didn't mention <laughs> at all during the presentation. Sure. um, But they had heard about it and found it and they, they were interested. And yeah. I... Uh, I was overjoyed. I was just like, yes, that means that they had to look for it and that mm-hmm. they found it on their own, which was... And so I loved the Impulse Ensemble, uh, mm-hmm. working with them. They So that was a, a, a combination of a couple of different pieces. Yeah. One of those pieces was uh, this small mixed quartet piece called Afraid, which is um, based on uh, concepts of fear and concepts of... Uh, community kind of like what I was talking about earlier with horror but what makes that piece really special uh, for me actually is there is an electronic component which is in the background there's a this constant tape that is playing that is breaking and cutting in different scenes of Night of the Living Dead throughout so you hear this this small chamber ensemble be playing things. And then all of a sudden they play a line of music that actually matches with a a little line of dialogue that a character from night of the living dead says. And it just kind of keeps going and builds on this aspect of, of fear and also the safety of community because it is through uh, the combinations and the interplay of the actual instruments that we we start to understand uh, the qualities. I, 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 at least I feel of uh, community and and those concepts of fear and being able to then use community as like a shield for uh, times of fear. And uh, the other one that I uh, had them uh, perform, or that they performed for me, was this uh, piano work called uh, Humans and Insects, um, which is uh, based on uh, uh, another artist named Osama Tezuka. Uh, and it's about mimicry and how we can make the piano sound as a different instrument and how we can take piano sounds and start to deconstruct them. Um, and when Did we deconstruct... that inspire their new project. It it did. That was definitely one of the starts of it. Yeah. Uh, it was that was kind of like the testing ground for mm-hmm. in traditional piano playing. So at the keys and on the keys, yeah. what can we do to reshape the the fundamentals of piano playing to yeah. be something that is leading towards mimicry?
0: That sounds fun, but yeah, I need to uh, learn the basics or the foundation first before I can probably start doing that. Right. <laughs>
1: I don't even know if I could, if I could play that piece at this time. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's been a little bit. I want to get back to the the roots of uh, where I actually met you and, um, you know, through obviously Redwood Sound Labs, uh, Aaron and uh, Biggs. You, do you want to talk about uh, Watch No Evil? <laughs> Is this <laughs> yeah, the time? why not? All right. So let's, let's look at your it. additional end of it. Uh, you know, what motivated you to start uh, the podcast, uh, Watch No Evil, and what topics do you discuss in this show? <laughs> For the
1: listeners. So w- with Watch No Evil, uh, it was a pandemic project, really. And it was one of those things where I, I had been friends with Zach for such a long time. And even though uh, I- he lived in Illinois and I was living in Indiana about f- four hours away, about once a week, we-, we would get together and we would talk on the phone. Actually, this was you know, pre-Zoom. So we would actually just call each other. And we would sit there and we would watch a horror movie together over the phone. Um, over the phone, wow. With good. and it, it would be me, uh, my friend Zach and his wife Val. We would we would like sit there and we would just watch these movies and then we would talk about them and then we would always say, we would always say to each other, you know what? We should do a podcast. We should do a yeah. podcast sometime. Yeah. And it just you know it just became this running joke of we should do a podcast mm. and then the pandemic happened yep. and everything shut down. We, we weren't able to like go outside we weren't able to mm. practice. I had much of my teaching load reduced. So all of a sudden I found that I had to work mm. significantly less. Uh, and what so, a shame <laughs> I know. Right. And uh, so one day I I told Zach, we were going to do our weekly horror movie watching anyway, because we were already doing it virtually. And I wanted to watch The Thing because he had never seen The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. I haven't seen that yet. And, Mm. oh, it's one of my favorite movies just of all time. Uh, And this was actually... it out tonight. (laughs) Yeah, this was actually the first episode of the podcast, if you notice. And that's Mm. because after we watched it, I said, get your recording equipment out. I'll meet you back here in three hours we're, we're, gonna gonna about this thing. Reco- <laughs> we're gonna talk about the thing and yeah. we we did it and we recorded and i said send me your audio and we're gonna see if if this works and so, so he sent me his audio i compiled it i put it together i sent it back to him and we actually listened to it together mm. and we were like yeah <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do this and yeah. so we we drew up a schedule of how we were actually going to do all of the editing, do all of the recording work, what episodes we were going to make and how we were going to talk about the show. And it it just sprang forth from there. And we've kind of refined the process. Our earlier episodes are mm. an hour long. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we suddenly were like, yeah, this could we we can do 30 minutes. Mm. So um we typically record when we record for like two and a half hours sometimes at the max uh and then one of us will edit it down to that like 30 minute time frame uh mostly because we'll start talking about something and then it'll become an anecdote about our personal lives and then we're just talking about our personal lives again because we're friends (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so uh we just started doing this and uh, we we just started talking more and more about uh, art and the artistic process behind doing these podcasts and that we just loved talking about horror movies. And so uh, when we got to like topics as, as we've kind of refined it and we talk about things within the show uh, that we're actually watching, it's typically seeing how much of it we can actually dissect and almost in a way that is, um, between us combative like oh but did you notice this thing and then zach will say yes (laughs) yeah and then we start to we start to get onto this this rolling uh this constantly rolling ball of of information and interconnectivity in in all of these uh these films and talking about not only what the film means and what certain aspects mean in the film but what those things mean to us. And I think that there are a lot of people who look at horror as this, this um, visceral act of, of violence against the viewer. And in many cases, I, I think that that is true, but in many cases it's, it's not true. It's it's about approaching a taboo subject with intentionality and still having some sort of more, uh, moral end goal that it's trying to tell you and and in a lot of cases it's community uh, I personally think I think that it is about finding the tribe that you would die for and what happens when you do <laughs> and in many cases that's that's part of horror and uh, the final girl only survives because of the actions and the help of uh, the community that was willing to sacrifice themselves for her Um so we We roll into the these concepts uh within the movie, and we we one up each other, but we also are just having mm. fun breaking down aspects of uh of art
0: and I wanted to say um just before uh, about um you know like contrast to let's say fields of glory with uh, redwood sound Labs, um mm. yours yours and Zach's is kind of like the uh the crude and lit not of sports films but of horror films <laughs> and yeah. i like how it just entwines. you know i feel like bigs uh, really uh found the right one with you guys
1: <laughs> yeah and and we adore him so yeah. yeah can that speak too high and i mean all of the work that he does just as a yeah. podcaster but mm-hmm. also as like a producer and friend of almer's that we found through podcasting um I, I really do think that part of the reason that we kept Watch No Evil going for so long, even after like um, the pandemic and doing so many seasons, yeah. because we had such encouragement and such support from M that we were like, we have one person who likes us, and God dang it, we're gonna make sure that this show stays on the air for them. It definitely
0: exemplifies a uh, big, and I
1: like I like to um kind of uh
0: picture him as because even he was my day one you know like always a supporter you know the one that's liking all the posts and whatnot and um I like the image I don't know if you've seen the meme where it's like the it's like a console rehearsal um but like at one of those rock concerts and it's like that guy in the crowd of uh, one uh billboard like it's just that one friend that's always liking <laughs> yep. every post yeah that's pigs
1: yep <laughs> yeah He's and, great.
0: Yeah. And I also wanted to comment on uh with Watch No Evil, for example. I don't know if you've received many much feedback. So I want to give you my feedback. I'm not much of a I'm a I'm a movie fan, like I, I like watching movies, but horror is really not one that I kind of watch. So I kinda of shy away from it. And I don't have too many people or friends that probably want to watch it with me, but I like the concept. Um, because that might uh make it less, you know, scary. Oh, you know, looking. Like, because I kind of like cringe away from it. I'm like, it's not really as enjoyable. I don't know if you get that outstanding. But um, I wanted to just say with um, horror movies and Watch No Evil, it lets me uh, still watch horror movies in a way. So you kind of walk me through it. Or you and Zach walk me through the horror movie. So it's not as scary. And, you know, it can also just give me more of an understanding of what the movie is about and brings better yeah. meaning. So just uh, my feedback. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we that and we we love that. We we have a couple of friends who are yep. who are squeamish and who won't watch the movies with us. We always invite them, but they won't do it, and it's because they don't like watching horror movies. But yeah. they'll they'll listen to the episodes and they'll they'll react because, mm-hmm. and then they'll they'll text us afterwards, just like, oh, you talked about this thing in the movie. That sounds really interesting, and then. For them, uh, for our close friends, it, it actually became this thing where we would do this episode and Zach and I would talk through the horror movie and it got to the point where we had these these friends who wouldn't watch the horror movies because they couldn't handle the horror movies, but they would have meaningful comments to add to the discussion of the horror movie and we want to make sure that we feel that we are letting people who who want to make comments of horror movies and who want to participate in that uh, have the opportunity to do so we can we can try to demystify uh the horror aspect of it and, and still get to the message at large so uh, i really i i i love that that piece of feedback thank you so much for sharing and and i will make sure that that Zen gets it too because i know he <laughs> that that means a lot to to him as well
0: perfect no that's okay my pleasure um and let's talk about the, your involvement in the the dollar babies project and uh, your yeah, experience working with uh Stephen King's short stories can we tell us a bit more
1: about that <laughs> yeah so this was a just a wild a wild project so uh the way that this whole thing started was um I was actually working on my master's degree in composition initially and I was looking for grants. Uh, specifically to do uh, arts grants uh, about opera because I knew that I wanted to write an opera uh, as part of my my like master's uh, coursework in composition, and I was scrolling through these websites uh, about uh, arts grants and I saw this thing called Dollar Babies on like a compiled list of grants that artists could get, yeah. um, which I don't think that this is a this isn't a grant really because. Uh, it, but it's just an offering to or an opportunity for, for young artists to mm. work with these materials. And it's just, just called Dollar Babies. And I was like, that's an interesting name. It is. And it I clicked on it. it. Yeah. Do you and know why it, it's called it was... Dollar Baby?
0: Yeah. I did look too uh-huh. far into it. Sorry. It's probably on the website, but maybe you can yeah, explain. So, That'd be good.
1: <laughs> I can't. So when you are doing licensing rights, yeah. Uh, and you are doing transferable licensing rights mm-hmm. to be able to grant uh that those licensing rights there there's still like mm-hmm. a part of that that is taxable and yeah. so to uh to get the licensing for one of the Stephen King short stories to adapt it into a film into uh, a television like pilot show script uh or an op uh, an opera and this is just for students by the way you you send Stephen King, one dollar, and he will then give you the rights to do it.
0: <laughs> Love it. That's uh, a so St- uh, Stephen King, right?
1: <laughs> yep, and that that's why
0: it's uh that's why it's the the Dollar Babies project. I'm got to tag Steve. him. I'll, I'll tag this episode to Stephen King's Twitter. I don't know if he does use Twitter. What does he use? I don't
1: know. That's a good question. But he is... Uh, yeah. So that that was a project that yeah um that he has available to him, and so I wanted to I wanted to uh, take part in that and yeah the i unfortunately you Mm. you can't see the project anymore because it it it, it went down i don't have the rights to it because it only lasts for uh, a year okay you you have to work on it and so don't have
0: um, any more rights to it well then why don't talk about it i'm gonna get you in trouble (laughs)
1: oh no 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 Uh, i i i can talk about it i just can't like i just can't like you know, show clips of the opera or I can't show clips of the film Mm -hmm. that was made for it. Um, Uh, that's Matt Mason. Yeah. (laughs) Now that that I would get in trouble for, (laughs) (laughs) um, so I, I did this, uh, I did, I worked on this story and I, uh, am a huge Stephen King fan. Um, I've always, I've always loved his work. I read, uh, it and the shining in high school. Um, the shining for a long time was one of my all-time favorites uh but i found i uh i found this short story of his called the the woman in the room which is about this this family in which the mother is slowly dying of cancer and her two sons are at odds about kind of what to do and uh so they're constantly fighting. She is is on her deathbed. She's not going to be recovering. It's just about making her comfortable. And it is the least supernatural horror movie or sorry, the least supernatural horror story of all of Stephen King's horror stories. it but it is so visceral and real and a thing that people legitimately experience on a day to- day basis. the the torture that they feel of watching someone wither away um and I was so drawn to it and I was mostly drawn to it because my grandmother uh also died of cancer and I when I was very very young but I remember I would I would go over to her house a lot while she was sick and specifically I remember I was um sitting in like this like uh lobby area outside of her apartment because I couldn't go in because all of the fa- all of my family were there they were kind of like saying their last goodbyes um to her and so I was just like sitting outside I came in I, I did my last goodbye and then I- my parents ushered me out and had me sit uh in the hallway and I was just playing Pokemon uh on my game on my game starting to like realize what was happening there and so yeah it's just this like thing where you can feel that you're like silently crying while playing a video game (laughs) it's very sad now but like but um yeah and so it was just this really impactful moment and so reading this story it like really brought me back to that Mm. that sensation of like this person who you so deeply love and you can't do anything for um, and, and kind of experiencing that and it, it draws parallels, like the torture that you feel waiting for them is the, it's kind of the pain that they are personally experiencing. And so I took the, I took the woman in the room, the story, and I, I sent, uh, I sent uh, an email through, through Stephen King's website, the dollar babies like sing. And I just said, this is the story um, I would love to do this one. Would it be possible? And then I gave like a a super detailed description of one, why I wanted to do it. And two, what I was going to do. And I got an email a few days later that was just like, um, this has been granted. We're gonna send you the paperwork to like fill out for it. And then... You do this, this, and this, and then you'll have the, the you'll have um, not exclusive rights for a year to to work on producing a, a piece with um, with this story, and so that's that's what I did, and it was so impactful for me. It was it was really cool that this person who I really looked up to and respected, and has such notoriety, was offering this kind of opportunity to young artists and filmmakers um and to then also be able to work with a story that i felt extremely personally connected to um, was just insane and very very
0: cool mm, thanks for sharing that one that's so yeah matt mason the dollar baby that's a story
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so let's talk about the um yeah the category of uh yeah, research and findings. Uh, how has your research on gender performance in uh, popular music been received, and what are some key findings or insights you've discovered?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of the things that research uh, in gender uh, is is huge. It's, it's a vast, vast pool, and you have a lot of people who are working in different fields of gender and what gender performance actually means. And, I mean, if you even go back to, like, the... Um, the ideas of uh femininity uh in music the the concept of masculinity in music um, there is a uh... oh what is it i can um there's a uh... oh okay i no, there's this book that was written by Susan McCleary uh, called feminine endings which kind of discussed uh different essays in Feminist music criticism and it expresses uh, different issues of gender and sexuality all the way from like 17th century, like Bach, early Mozart, Beethoven, etc. All the way up into like contemporary music, rock music, performance art, etc. And so music uh, that deals with gender performance is vast and it's extremely wide and people have done a lot of interesting work on it that said a lot of the commentary that authors and academics do on gender performance is kind of detached from the music itself it's about the gender uh, performance of the actual artist that is performing it um and it largely uh what is it? how should i say that this it, it, it is uh It is, like I said, it's largely detached from the core of the music at large. And so my research on gender performance is talking about how I think that certain artists, especially in popular music, are are kind of toying with the ideas of gender and the ways in which gender uh, has been kind of codified uh, or stereotyped uh, and and starts to mess with that. So uh, look at an artist like, for example... Nicki Minaj, who is an internationally known uh, hip-hop artist, Um, it's throughout Nicki Minaj's performances she adopts both these masculine and feminine characters. A lot of work has talked about the masculine and feminine characters that she's adopted, but no one has ever talked about what those characters do to affect the music and what the music... Uh, actually conveys and so my goal is to is to always like talk about the fact that gender is a discrete part of composition the way that people are thinking about this particular phrase is going to be gendered as female and this particular phrase is gendered as male i've
0: never Um, thought about it like that (laughs) but now i have but now it's well (laughs) I yeah and,
1: <laughs> and and Nicki Minaj is great for doing that specifically because um in in hip hop in general you can tie rhythm and rhythmic complexity to first character and then secondly to gender. So with Nicki Minaj uh, she's adopted this Barbie persona, right? And and so there's this like bubblegum pink aesthetic that she has of uh, For certain characters. And when she's using those characters. She adopts uh, what's referred to as the Valley Girl um, affect. So the the Valley Girl comes from like a Nicolas Cage movie. uh, That is uh, indicated by like this high rising terminal. And the use of um, like, for example. As a vocal filler. Uh, And it's supposed to represent like feminine ditziness. So Nicki Minaj kind of takes that character. And he uses it in rap uh, and ties it explicitly to rhythm. So in the rhythms where she's adopting this Valley Girl characteristic, there's no syncopation. All of the beat divisions of each of the phrases are even beat divisions. So like series of eighth notes rather than um, more rapid 16th note pattern. And then for her more hard, air quotes again, masculine rap style in which she is trying to mimic kind of um, the rap greats, uh, for example, she's using different levels of rhythmic complexity and syncopation that she is explicitly trying to gender as masculine. And it's not because I'm saying that rhythmic simplicity is feminine and rhythmic complexity is masculine, but that we've created this stereotype around women in hip-hop music that is, people say women are not as good at rapping as men, which is not the case. Uh, but that's one of the like main criticisms of a lot of women in rap. And so Nicki Minaj is, is taking that concept, that conceit that people have made against her, and she's kind of flipping it on, her, on its head and uh, making it a part of the joke. So she's using gender and its performance to kind of uh, push back against this uh, uh, anti feminine hip hop rhetoric. It's mm, pretty
0: clever. I think a lot of people, if you don't, um, obviously, not that you're not in the scene, but if you're not, uh, if you don't understand the, is it a nuance or the, the you know, the meaning behind the music? I mean, you wouldn't get. definitely this. a nuance.
1: Yeah. yeah so, um, in in rap there's this concept of sounding right so sounding is the idea of actually uh, taking social artifacts and infusing those into the actual musical composition the rhythm the flow the, the tessitura and range of the voice that they're performing in and they're adding in different stylistic characteristics that have some sort of indicator for example Ohio based rap uh can kind of be identified by the fact that it uses a very specific triplet rhythm. Uh, Dr. Robert Komaniecki, who is uh, one of my mentors and is, uh, I would say, an expert in hip hop, and is also very popular on Twitter, uh, has has kind of talked about the ways that different hip hop uh, cultures have kind of sprung up. You have Ohio-based rap and Atlanta-based rap and Chicago-based rap, uh, East Coast and West Coast differences. And those differences uh, are first sociological and the sociological implications, the ways that those people build communities directly impact how the music sounds. And so uh, you have uh, aspects of of kind of culture in the music. And I'm just taking it a little bit uh, in a different direction and talking specifically about gender and the way that we use signifiers which are how we uh, purport certain aspects of masculinity or femininity in music uh, via the language that we use and via the actual musical elements. Eminem does this a lot too uh, um, especially when he's talking about other men in rap so he he refers to his own lyrical dominance as being a, a matter of speed the reason that he is the most masculine or the most powerful man in hip hop is because nobody can rap faster than he does, and that's like a compositional tool that is a compositional device that he is explicitly tied to his masculinity.
0: Mm. Can you rap?
1: Can I rap? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, say- absolutely I can.
0: <laughs> Are you gonna lay down some?
1: I would. Uh, oh, I love. Uh, <laughs> I do love Rap God though. That yeah. is one that I, um, will go back to. Oh, so impressive! And over again. Yeah, it's like. Oh, it's uh, so impressive.
0: It just came and out he, of nowhere.
1: And he does it live too, and it's hmm. like he he knows how to do it, and and I think that like you're looking at artists like that, and and when we separate the the social implications. Uh, from the actual music itself we, we do a huge disservice to the kind of brilliance of these contemporary popular artists and you have different sects within uh, academic spheres which are like yeah. the only good music is classical music or classical music is dead and we should only be working on popular music and, and neither of those is correct uh, all, all music has validity and all music has similar ideas of representation Um, there are similar themes that have kind of persisted with music forever and in all Mm. things and when we take the time to appreciate and look at how different aspects of culture have kind of shaped different musical communities we have a much richer vein uh, to mine for art
0: Mm. what would your uh, legacy or uh, memoir be um, thinking back on yeah when you pass on, what would you like to have been known for? I'm not thinking back. It doesn't make sense. Sorry. (laughs) We are ghosts right now. (laughs) Oh, for sure. But yeah, um, when you pass on, what would you like to have been known for?
1: I think that the, the big thing for me is again, that sense of community and, and sense of friendship. It's, it's always really been important for me to have been able to, in any space that I occupy, try and make people feel welcome. Um, and, and integrity in that friendship as well. Um, I, I've talked a lot about like the really amazing and wonderful aspects of classical music and, and some of the not-so-amazing aspects of it as well, but I think that um, sometimes we get into this mindset of when we interact with people, especially as artists, uh, if we try to interact with them it, as friends, it can become very transactional. Uh, as a composer, uh, I never want people to feel like me being friends with them is going to lead to them performing my work down the way, or uh, I, I don't want to feel like a person is only trying to be my friend so that I write something for them to perform and go off. And so uh, um, I, I'm very much of the mindset that I, I would like to be known for kind of that, that welcomingness, um, that friendliness, hopefully. And, the, the idea that people don't need to like or that I didn't I didn't try to use people for things. that so just we can we can have friendships that don't need to be transactional. We can just make friends and we can make art. Yeah, that's the tagline. Make friends, make art. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, 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 uh, that's, that's when I, tombstone. what I feel. Yeah. That's going to be on the tombstone. Yeah. Make friends, make art. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Just one more thing. If you love what you're hearing and want to support us, consider buying us a coffee on buymeacoffee.com forward slash ndpodcast. That's N for November, D for Delta podcast. Your contribution will help fuel our podcast and bring you even more great content in the future. So thank you for being part of this podcasting journey.